DTB recently conducted a survey among its subscribers into doctors' knowledge about and attitudes towards herbal medicines. This included looking at what doctors actually know about herbal medicines and what they believe their patients know. In the DTB podcast, we also discussed the survey results with Linda Anderson from the MHRA and Michael McIntyre, a herbalist. This is an excerpt from that discussion, the full version of which is available for free on podcast.bmj.com forward slash DTB. Could you just outline what a product will need in order to get um, a a, a licensed status under that scheme? In order to get a traditional registration, the company have got to provide us with a full pharmaceutical dossier showing that the product is, uh, that the plants are manufactured under good agricultural conditions. The product's got to be uh, made under what we call GMP, good manufacturing practice. We actually inspect where the, uh, the product is made uh, as well. So the, the quality of the ingredients and the quality of the product is really as it would be for any medicines and the, uh, the controls are all in place. The, the company have got to show that the ingredients have been used for 30 years as a traditional medicine, with 15 years of that inside the EU. The reason for the EU component is so that we've got some confidence that there will have been some form of pharmacovigilance activity and any uh, major side effects, possibly drug-herb interactions, probably would have been noted. Not all, but hopefully most of them. The companies don't have to do clinical trials. That's really the, uh, the derogation that the, the, the directive allows. However, they do have to have plausibility in terms of uh, the usage of the plants. We know a lot about uh, many of the, the, the herbal medicines that are used throughout Europe. Uh, do you think that that's, um, for those people who, who want an excuse to, if you like, down the whole field, do you think that that's a, that's a big omission, the fact that, that clinical trials won't be needed in order to get licensing under the scheme? Well, it, it is a derogation for, for this scheme uh, and there, w- there will be people who, who think that if, if something isn't uh, proven by way of conventional clinical trials, then it has no place. But in fact, I suppose... What, what's, what we're, a, what's the counter-argument to that? Well, I think the counter-argument is the real-life situation that you were alluding to earlier, the fact that these are available. We've had traditional medicines in Europe uh, for you know, hundreds of years. There's a well-established tradition in the but same I'm, way. I'm sure you both understand the point I'm making, which is that some people say, well, this is licensing light. It's, it's, you're getting products waved through which, um, which haven't, if you like, passed, in their view, the rigorous standards that so-called conventional medicines have to go through. And why should that be? Why should... In their view, again, these second-grade products just be waved through because they've been used a long time and somebody comes along and says, well, these can be made safely and should be made available. Well, Is, isn't, there a, isn't there a risk that actually <laughs> products that don't work particularly well will end up on the market with a stamp of approval from the regulatory authority? Well, we, we make it very clear that the products are based on traditional use only. So they're not expecting uh, perhaps it to work in the same way as as a conventional medicine. Who's not expecting it to work in that well, way? Well... <laughs> <laughs> the patient may very well expect it to work in that way. Yeah, and I, and, I think... And the doctor may be may assume that you're saying it should work in the same way as a well, conventional we're, medicine. Well, we're saying that it's been traditionally used. I mean, for example, things like valerian uh, 
in fact, it was part of the doctor's armamentarium uh, before we had benzodiazepines. So there's some evidence that uh, valerian will help people sleep, but maybe it's not as effective as a benzodiazepine. Uh, if we don't regulate these as medicines, they will just go into dietary supplements. And that actually is the worst mm. case scenario. And if the medical profession doesn't get that, then it really needs to, to understand that because the, the health... I mean, we're fighting the, the food industry at the moment to argue that St John's wort should be regulated as a medicine or as a dietary supplement. Where would you like it to be? What are the risks if it goes into the dietary supplement side? There was a wonderful case of a guy who actually tried to market St John's wort crisps. Mm. Well, <laughs> I mean, I kid you not, there yeah. was, wasn't I mean, there? We're, we're dealing with people <laughs> uh, frankly, I mean, some things will be food, you know, food supplements. The, the, that market will remain. So most of the ginseng, for example, will probably be sold as dietary supplements. It's still an issue for us. Um, Ideally, we would want it all under medicines, but we couldn't fight and win that battle. Um, you know, we, we really couldn't. Mm. But the risk to patients of the rubbish that will be sold, I mean, we know that a lot of the herbal products that, have, that are described as ginseng ha have never been no, near ginseng. ginseng. Mm. They, they've never mm. seen no. anything beginning with no. G, let alone yeah. ginseng. Yeah. So that's the risk. Mm. Uh, I mean, there have been deaths in the UK. I mean, we had a case at Bristol Royal Infirmary not uh, many years ago where a patient was admitted, uh, uh, almost going to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Very weird behaviour. And it was apparently some junior doctor who said, well, this looks like mercury poisoning. And lo and behold, the patient's family then brought in this carrier bag full of stuff. And we found 11% of mercuric, chlor mercurous chloride, I think it was, in the product. And that's a traditional medicine coming out of India. Yeah. That's, and, and were we surprised? No. Mm. Because, in fact, there's 50-something products in the Chinese pharmacopoeia that contain heavy metals. Mm. I also discussed with the experts about how we discover and record the interaction of herbal medicines with conventional medicines. Obviously, uh, we rely very heavily on, uh, it, with this dearth of information that we have, we rely very heavily on everyone in the, uh, the chain looking for different side effects, new side effects, even just the frequency of side effects we're interested in. Um, potential for interactions um, is, I mentioned that, that with St. John's Wort, we only know about the interactions because of good doctors observing uh, ill effects in patients. And the early cases involved cyclosporin and organ rejection very serious interactions and it sparked the whole cascade of regulatory activity worldwide. Now every drug that reacts with St John's wort, we've also got that information on the SPC patient information leaflet of the conventional medicine. So with oral contraceptives it will tell you in the patient information leaflet that it could interact with St John's wort. So we've put that specific example in. With warfarin, um, because of the, the general problems with warfarin, there's a high-level message that patients using warfarin need to be very careful with all herbal remedies. And that's partly because they have to be careful with all dietary intakes of vegetables and so on anyway. Some patients aren't aware that some dietary supplements are herbal. Uh, they could interfere. So those patients need to be well aware that lots of things could interfere with their medication. But I would certainly make a plea to doctors that 
obviously you've identified with your survey the lack of information that doctors have, the need for information. I think that's something that's very key. And I would hope that, as Michael said, through the uh, professional development efforts, educational efforts, that that can be remedied because it's not about whether you believe in herbal medicines or not. It's a case of what are patients taking. In the wider discussion, we mentioned recent cases where herbalists are said to have caused their patients harm and how this might have been avoided by registration and regulation of the practice. Michael, you've mentioned a couple of times the putative regulation of herbalists. Perhaps you could just sketch in a little more detail how it's planned to work, not least perhaps to allay some of the scepticism that we know is out there about. Mm. It'd be be interesting to hear your view on on how it actually works and whether it would be successful. I think that what's important is to realise that practitioners will be on a statutory regulated a register. That's what we hope the government's going to say. And that they, um, the use of their medicines will be entirely uh, dependent on their maintaining that registration. So if anybody behaves badly with a patient or um, is unprofessional or does something uh, which they shouldn't from a, a medicine's point of view, they can be struck off, literally struck off, and then they won't be able to work as a herbalist anymore. How do they get on the register? Then? Well, that, that they would get on through um, a, a training program. We have, I mean, my organisation, which is an umbrella organisation, um, has put together a common core curriculum, which I'm sure if any doctor looked at, would he, he or she would be delighted to see that it contains huge amounts of conventional medicine. We expect people to know and be able to diagnose to the point that they know the red flags when they see them and that they don't treat, and we would absolutely require that. So this is university standard of education. It's delivered in universities in, many, in several universities in the UK, and it's over several years. And the exams are tough. Um, That's the first thing. The second thing is that the um, MHRA and the professional herbalists have worked together to to look at a scheme whereby the products that practitioners use, which aren't exactly the same as the -the over-the-counter products, um, would be regulated um, if they were provided by... Um, a third party, they would be under license from the MHRA and they would be subject to quality controls. And the profession itself would have a list, we hope, of herbs that practitioners could use. And if they want to use something off that list, they would have to get very good verification of it before it could be added to the list. So all of this is yet to be worked out in detail, but it does provide a template The podcasts of the discussion and the full results of the survey are available on the DTB website, dtb.bmj.com.